It's Tuesday, July the 4th, 2023, and welcome back to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism. I'm not the only Hoover Fellow podcasting these days. In fact, I suggest you go to our website, which is hoover.org. Go to the tab at the top of the homepage. It says commentary. Slide over to where it says multimedia and up will pop 17, 16 or 17 audio podcasts and all, including mine, which is at the top of the page, Matters of Policy and Politics. And I think we're at the top of the page because we get terrific guests today being no exception. My guest today is John Yu. John is a Hoover Institution Visiting Fellow and non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He is also the Emanuel S. Heller Chair in Law and Distinguished Professor of Law at the UC Berkeley School of Law. When he's not teaching or on television trying to make sense of court rulings, John Yu is a prolific writer that includes a book released just last week. Its title is The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. He co-authored it with Robert J. Delahunty. It explains what goes on inside that beautiful building uh, in past and present. It includes a uh, ranking of best and worst justices, which I'm looking forward to reading. Also recaps uh, controversial decisions of the court's future, which is going to be today's podcast about some controversial decisions where the court is going. John, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, thanks, Bill. Happy Fourth of July. Yeah, here we are on the Fourth of July. What are we doing? We're working on the Fourth of July, but you know, we were talking before we started this podcast. It's kind of a strange holiday to be in California for the Fourth, and I'm not saying California is not patriotic, but just you know, you were born and raised in Philadelphia. I grew up in Washington D.C. It's a big holiday because it really is part of the city's DNA. But here in California, not so much, John. No, because you don't want to hurt the environment when you celebrate the 4th of July in California. So I think uh, no fireworks and uh, people feel guilty eating hot dogs and hamburgers because they uh, they want to make sure the animals had a nice life looking over the ocean before they uh, went. And uh, sometimes a firework sounds sound like AK-47s going off in downtown Oakland. You know, you got to I think you probably need a metal hat and be wise to wear at midnight tonight. It's a strange holiday here, Bill. But what, what do they do in Palo Alto? Uh, maybe uh, top up the electric charge on their EVs and drive a little less. And uh... <laughs> There you go. Hey, speaking of hot dogs, John, very good California news. The uh, Coney Island hot dog eating contest earlier today. I don't know if you got up and watched it, but yes, Joey Chestnut rules again. Oh, how many? How many did he eat? I don't have a count. I'll check it up for you, John. But he uh, <laughs> he, he held the belt. Uh, you are you are no stranger, you're no stranger to consuming food. You would you ever dare get into a hot dog eating contest, John? Are you kidding? Today I have some uh, friends visiting from Italian universities, and I'm going to take them to an all you can eat hot dog hamburger extravaganza to celebrate July Fourth. So I'm gonna I'm gonna be in competition. I'm gonna tell the Italian guys that this is actually a hot dog eating competition and see who wins. I love it very much. So, John, let's uh, talk about the uh, – I'm just looking at Joey Chestnut here right now. Joey Chestnut believes protester at last year's contest cost him five hot dogs, and on it goes. <laughs> Joey Chestnut, a California treasure. Let's talk about the book, John, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. What prompted you and uh, Mr. Delahunty to write this? It's interesting, Bill. I think it was you know about last term. We were supposed to write this book. We wrote it at the end of the term last year after the – abortion decision in Dobbs and the Second Amendment case in a case called Bruin. And we decided that the court was undergoing extraordinary attack mm-hmm. from critics. And we wanted to explain why the court is not a political actor in the sense of trying to be pro-Republican or pro-Democrat, but that it was a ideological body because the Constitution has an ideology and that there's nothing wrong with that. 
And I think this year we're going to see it get worse because, you know, as we know, this last week, the Supreme Court struck down racial preferences in the last area, allegedly, where they were allowed in college university admissions. They stopped Biden's student debt cancellation program. Mm -hmm. They upheld the right of freedom of conscience from diversity requirements. So I think that uh, these attacks on the court are only going to get worse. I think they're going to redouble. And I just wanted people to realize this is not normal. Calling on the president and the majorities in Congress to expand the size of the Supreme Court, impose term limits, cut back on the jurisdiction of the court, right? Leaking opinions, uh, assassination attempts, daily protests in front of the justice houses. This is not normal. This is an effort, I think, to attack the independence of the judiciary. Yeah, well put. So what surprised you during the course of your research? What Because uh, you you clerked for uh, Clarence Thomas, so you know the Supreme Court mm-hmm. very well to begin with. But what did you surprise? What surprised you to find out as you, you were doing this? I, so many people, when they uh, take constitutional law or learn about the Supreme Court and political science, uh, they're told this story about how um, the Supreme Court has been activist over its years and had to be uh, slap back by most prominently FDR. You know, the, the, the moment people really read about is the two moments people really come across the Supreme Court would be John Marshall at the beginning and then the New Deal fight with FDR. And in the Marshall Court period, people will learn that uh, John Marshall uh, sort of twisted the Constitution's meaning to expand the power of the government and of the judiciary, but that this was a good thing. And then when they read about FDR, They'll read about how uh, the Supreme Court stood in the way of progress, which was the New Deal, and that FDR used the threat of packing the court to tame the justices and to allow the great progressive bureaucratic state to come into being. And so what we tried to do in the book, I think is surprising, is to say, actually, what's important is for the court to agree on a consistent, uh, again, ideology about how to interpret the Constitution and the Constitution's place in uh, the country's system. And that the way we argue, the way I think that we trace through where the court has been best has been, um, and this may sometimes lead it to strike down laws, so quote unquote being activist, and sometimes lead it to uh, deferring to the elected branches, quote unquote, not being activist. If it sticks to, I think, an ideology or approach of originalism, just interpreting the constitution based on its original meaning and then letting the political chips fall where they may, rather than trying to, you know, tack here, tack there in response to where they think politics uh, requires them to be. John, were you struck in doing this book, um, the connection between the courts and the times in which they live? For example, if you look at the most controversial cases with this court this year and last, um, for example, this year, uh, a case involving a web designer in Colorado. This becomes an issue of free speech and will be morphed into gay rights. Um, a Supreme Court in the 1930s, they wouldn't know what a web designer is. They wouldn't be having this conversation involving gay yeah. rights. The Dobbs decision last year, well, a court in the 1930s, John, there was no Roe v. Wade, so that's not germane to those times. Affirmative action. Courts in the 1930s and earlier, they wouldn't know what affirmative action is. So when you look at these courts in the ruling, how much is that tied into really the issues of the day? That's a good question. That that is a theme of the book is that sometimes the court gets too tied in with the ideology of the day. Right. So the, you know, the New Deal court uh, buys into progressivism. Uh, The pre-Civil War court upholds slavery in the territories 
because and it, and I think this is happening. You know, the threat of that is happening today. We see them in the affirmative action case in particular, but these other cases you mentioned, mm-hmm. this idea that the justices should uh, accept or defer to elite expert opinion of the day. A lot of times, elite expert opinion is wrong. Right. And so when the court accepts it, whether it's, oh, Dred Scott, right? Slavery is inherent in the Constitution. Blacks can never become citizens. You know, that helped precipitate the Civil War or buying into the progressive era idea of basically unlimited federal power and government by experts. We saw the culmination of that in the COVID response. You know, we see, so actually we argue, it can be a mistake for the court actually to buy into the politics of the day. In fact, the court, we argue, is sort of the one who's a slow down, don't rush to judgment, Uh, you know, return back to the founders and the idea of limited government that they had in mind. Um, the second uh, the second element of your question, Bill, also is, but of course, the founders, there's no way they could have known about right, the internet, right. you know, wedding planners. Um, but they did put into place certain kinds of principles, um, freedom of thought and conscience through the First Amendment, freedom of speech and uh, free, you know, freedom to exercise your religion. Um, the 14th Amendment, the Reconstruction Amendments, which I think created a colorblind principle of the Constitution. So here's here's the pitch. And actually, I, I got this idea a long time ago from, from one uh, Richard Epstein, who wrote a book about 30 years ago. He's still talking about it now. <laughs> and it was called uh, 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 Simple Rules for a Complex World. Uh, and his he's writing about economics and law. But actually, I think the Constitution creates some pretty simple rules. Uh, and you saw the court stand up for some of them right. recently. Colorblind constitution, you know, freedom of conscience, things like that. Congress has the power of the purse. And it's only when the court gets uh, seduced into these overly sophisticated, elaborate, contemporary theories of the day by, I think, intellectual elites where they miss, they, they misstep, sometimes grievously so. Mm-hmm. All right, let's get into the affirmative action case. Or I should say cases because there actually were two before the court, John. There was one filed against Harvard and the other against University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, which UNC graduates bristle at because they're UNC, not UNC Chapel Hill. Um, but uh, the court uh, uh, ruling against the two colleges in this regard, John, are you familiar with the joke about how the major newspapers cover the end of the world? Have you heard this one? No, no. Okay, so the joke is world ends. Uh, how do the how do three newspapers handle it? So the Wall Street Journal headline: World ends, markets down sharply. <laughs> New York Times: World ends, details on page B three. <laughs> but then the Washington Post: John, world ends, women and minorities seen hurt the most. <laughs> and I've never heard that. Before. <laughs> I thought of that joke when this decision came down because this is a proverbial. If you see the world that way, this court decision is a ten strike because affirmative action does tie into both women and minorities. But let's begin this way, John. How do you define affirmative action? And I ask because this gets complicated very quickly. If you read public mm-hmm. opinion polls about this topic, voters tend to like affirmative action. We ask them, "Do you like affirmative action?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds good. Do you like, you know, do you like racial quotas? Do you believe that university admissions, public hiring should be, should race be a factor? No. So it seems to be, John, we have a challenge here just defining what exactly affirmative action is. So the affirmative action that the court took up in this Harvard case and the UNC Chapel Hill case is the use of race, mm-hmm. consideration of race in making a decision. Factoring into uh, the decision, right? Yeah, factoring. Yeah. Factor, may not be quotas exactly, but 
race giving an advantage, or as the Harvard Emissions Office calls it, a tip. <laughs> sort, of, sort of like a 15, like, like when you buy something at Palo Alto and you check the little box, it says give them 20% or 15 and, and full disclosure, like you, tip. Full disclosure, you're familiar with Harvard Emissions because you attended Harvard. But as I say, I went to Harvard during the time they were allowed to discriminate against Asians and had quotas against it. So mm-hmm. I must have been really good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it must be really hard for me to get in. Right. <laughs> so um, as opposed, and I think that's different than, as you say, uh, Bill, when some people talk about affirmative action, they sometimes think about something different, which is uh, taking account of someone's lifetime experiences. You know, maybe they came from a background where they were poor didn't have access to education, had other, you know, broken home, if we're allowed to call them that anymore, you know, challenges. That kind of affirmative action is not unconstitutional. The Constitution doesn't address any of that. But what the Constitution addresses is the use of race by the government. That's mm-hmm. what the Supreme Court struck down this week. Okay. So California went down this road 25 years ago, John, with Proposition 209. Uh, that initiative was revisited a few years ago in the form of Proposition 16. Voters voted very strongly uh, in both instances uh, against the idea of race-based admissions and also race-based uh, public hiring, if you will. Is this the end of legal actions when it comes to affirmative action? Because we've had various cases heading toward the court or before the court over the past 25 years, and it always seems to come back in one form or another. It was sort of like the vampire, the racial quota that wouldn't die. Yeah. Um, so this is the thing that, and this is why I think this is Chief Justice Roberts's greatest opinion. And what the Supreme Court does is it shows, again, we have the simple, simple principle, starts in the Declaration of Independence. It's what the Civil Wars fought over. It's embodied into the Constitution by the Reconstruction Amendments. It produces Brown versus Board of Education. Civil rights movement is a simple idea. The Constitution is colorblind. That mm-hmm. phrase comes from uh, Justice John Marshall Harlan's dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson. He was the only dissenter from the Supreme Court's decision after the Civil War, after the Reconstruction Amendments, that racial segregation in the South was okay. But that simple principle has been deviated from. And every time we deviated from it, the court says, Chief Justice Roberts says, it's been a disaster. Deviated it from Dred Scott when we said Congress couldn't stop the spread of slavery. Civil War. We deviated from Plessy versus Ferguson in 1890s and introduced Jim Crow segregation in the South. And then uh, Chief Justice Roberts says, and now we have allowed for the last, as you said, for the last 20, really 50 years since Backey versus University of California. And then over and over again, the court allowed one exception. And that was for college and university admissions, probably extends to hiring, probably extends to how universities operate. And he says that has to be ended because we, the court should not allow another disaster like the ones we have in the past. I, I, think, that, I think that will always be Chief Justice Roberts's greatest opinion because he said it so forcefully, but he also took the time to look at the history of the country and the court's relationship with politics by trying to, right, again, buy into the ideology of the, of the day, accept what the experts were telling the court rather than right, interpreting the Constitution and upholding principle. Okay. So the courts have said now, John, for Harvard, UNC, no tips for race. But two questions here, John. Number one, 
how do you actually monitor this? How do you make sure that universities are abiding by this decision? And then secondly, how do these schools get around it? My thought, John, is they'll just probably put more weight, they'll probably put more weight into, let's say, essays and try to mm. if we if we can't if we can't pick John Ewer Bill Whalen based on the ethnic background, we'll just get into their essay and try to make this sort of more, you know, admissions based on maybe a harrowing tale woe. In other words, how how far you've come from. Not not how you identify, but maybe what your journey is. It's a tough question, Bill. It's hard to say. So first, I I hate to use this phrase, but I think it's true. I think we're going to see massive resistance mm-hmm. by government bureaucracies, college bureaucracies. I use that phrase because that's what the Southerners called their resistance to Brown versus Board of Education. They mm-hmm. tried everything to escape the colorblind principle in public schools that the court announced. And I think it's fair to say it took about 15 to 20 years before serious desegregation occurred in the South. And it wasn't just the Supreme Court and the lower federal courts, you know, closely monitoring, monitoring what the South was doing. It took Congress. Congress passed the 1964 Civil Rights Act, 1965 Voting Rights Act. That was essential to pushing desegregation uh, forward. I think if the courts had had to do it by itself, it might have taken even longer. So that's one. Second thing, maybe, Bill, and this is, I think you and I, since we're in California, we might have a, a more ground eye view of it is we we are in a state which has had to live under the colorblind principle. And there has been resistance. I mean, uh, the University of California administrators today said in the Harvard case, we want to have the ability to discriminate on the basis of race, but those pesky voters, they won't let us, right? Uh, In fact, as I think you mentioned, uh, it's still Prop 209 is popular, right? When the, the initiative came up to overrule Prop 209, uh, was it two years ago or three yep. years ago? It failed, I think, by a larger margin. It did. Then so Prop two hundred nine was passed. Right. Yeah, so if you true? do the math, if you go back to nineteen ninety six, John, when two hundred nine was uh, approved by voters, I think about 55 percent of voters sign off on that. Yeah. Prop sixteen, which meant that a yes vote was to overturn uh, two hundred nine, but a no vote was to keep two hundred nine. The no side had about fifty seven percent of the votes. So you can actually show John that more people today support this yeah, notion. Actually, than that let, me, let me ask you. Let yeah. me ask you, why do you think that's true? Why do I mean this is the interesting thing to me because the ideal so you worked for Governor Wilson. Governor Wilson was really behind Prop 209. I was a young professor then I tried to help. Um I did not think the um ideology of racial diversity was so hardwired into our institutions then as it is now. I think it's much more difficult fight now to uproot racial quotas, racial diversity ideas. But still, the voters want it even more. They they want colorblindness even more than they did thir- yeah. almost 30 years ago. I think, John, a basic mistake of California politics is to put a measure on a ballot and assume that certain voting blocks will vote in a certain way. For example, we had a big debate over the definition of marriage here in California years ago, Proposition yeah. 8. I'm sure you remember that. Yeah. Um, yeah. It passed. In other words, we put in the Constitution that marriage is defined as between a man and a woman. Um, the backers of that were shocked when the vote came down because they assumed that it would carry well with minorities. They thought that black voters would support it, seeing it as a civil rights issue, when in fact there are black voters who are very grounded in religion and they struggle mightily with the issue of same-sex marriage. 
I think putting this into the context of affirmative action, though, Prop 209, John, you look at polls right now. Um, our colleague at Hoover, Doug Rivers, he does polling for YouGov. YouGov right. put a really interesting poll on it this the other day. Yeah, I, I always listen yeah. to those podcasts. They're hilarious. I'm listening to you guys argue, <laughs> Dave Brady and Doug Rivers argue about percentage points differences in the polls. You guys they're, are hilarious. They're the, Waldorf <laughs> Stat- they're the Waldorf and Statler of Hoover, no question about that. Um, <laughs> they do like each other. They're our buddies. But anyway, that poll, John, it showed, it asked, it asked a very simple question. Do you believe that race should factor into admissions? And majority of white voters said no. But then they asked Latinos and blacks, John, and about 60% of Latinos said no, and about 47% of blacks said no. In other words, the assumption might be that blacks overwhelmingly want race. Well, you can build an argument that for some for some black Californians to black Americans, they might think that no, you know, I want to get in, you know, based on my merits. I don't want pity. I don't want a favor or anything like that. So again, let's just not assume that certain ethnicities are just so, you know, break one way on this issue. It's more complicated than that. Plus, I think also anecdotally, John, I can tell you uh, my sister uh, had a daughter who applied to the University of Virginia years ago. Uh, my family is deep into UVA. There's just legacy, legacy, legacy all over the place. She had pretty decent uh-huh. grades. She did not get in. It was a numbers game. Uh, explained to her, and that's because yeah. two kids in her class in Fairfax County, and one was black and one was Latino, and they got in and she didn't. And so I think there are for some Americans out there just anecdotal evidence of how this hits as well. So I think that explains explains this. And, mm-hmm. you know, the close out of the political side of this, John, I don't think this is a good hill for Democrats to climb on 2024. Well, in a weird way, I, I was thinking the political consequences in a weird way might help Democrats because they don't have to defend one of the most unpopular policies in American politics, which most people hate. I, at the polls, I, I saw say close to 70% now disapprove of the use of race. Uh, just to finish a point you asked me about earlier about what the University of California does, what we see in California. Right. In part, some part encouraging about California, depressing when you think about what it means about university administrators. So uh, this last year, the University of California, all the campuses counted together, enrolled the most racially diverse class in its history, even though they can't use race. Now, there's some cheating going on. Uh, there's definitely efforts to take account of race through different proxies, but you can't do it in the ways they were doing it before. Right. You know, so you see Asian enrollment went up quite a bit. Um, actually, I think Hispanic enrollment now has come up quite a bit since Prop 209, the years before Prop 209, but they're fluid. They're not fixed. They're not quotas anymore. And as we have a multiracial society here in California where there's no majority race, that you would that shouldn't be surprising over time. The depressing thing, and, and so actually the uh, lawyers for uh, the Asian students against Harvard, uh, I think I know almost, I think I do know all of them. They're uh, mostly friends of mine. Um they made a big deal of this. They said, mm-hmm. it's not the end of the world if the court says you can't use race. Look at the University of California. They've enrolled the most uh, racially diverse class history. So what happens? The University of California files a brief at the Supreme Court in the Harvard case mm-hmm. saying, we want to distance ourselves from those Asian students. We wish we could use race. Yes, we enrolled the most diverse class in our history, but that's not good enough. We need to do more. And then they would say, but we're never going to say when it's over. We won't say when racial diversity is achieved. It may never be achieved because there can't actually be targets. So we not only do we want to have racial diversities have now, we want to we want to have racial preferences so that we can also socially engineer our student class in the way we see fit. And so that's a depressing thing about the university administrators. 
Uh, one last point is I hope readers, when they, if the listeners, if they do read the opinion of the majority here, the one other thing you can see here is the court is so suspicious of educators, so suspicious of bureaucracies and elites. Right. Because Bill, you asked me, like, we've seen these cases from Backey in 78 to this case called Gruder in 2003 to this case called Fisher in the 2010s. Every time the court has tried to strike down race in college, uh, the grand poobahs of the university come forth <laughs> and the grand poobahs of the CEOs, grand poobahs of the military come forth and they all say, trust us. We need to, racial diversity. It'll lead to better classrooms. It'll lead to better research better corporations, and a better military. And Chief Justice Roberts says, we don't trust you anymore. We trusted you these last two times. We gave you 25 years where we're going to look at it again. And he said, there's not a single reliable study, not a single one produced to the court that shows that racial diversity leads to better grades, better classroom outcomes, better research. You could tell the court thinks they've been lied to for the last 50 years by right, university presidents, and they've had it. And this is part of a broader trend that the court has. It's become very suspicious of experts. It's become very suspicious of bureaucracies. And the affirmative action case uh, is the you know, maybe the highest expression of that suspicion, but you're going to see it start to come forward in all kinds of other cases too. Yeah, I would note, John, that there were some other remarkable claims made in the uh, dissent. We'll get to that in a minute. Let's talk about shoes that might drop next here. Question for you, John. If you are a white professor in a university, do you think we're going to see a lawsuit uh, in which you will sue against DEI requirements? <laughs> you you read my mind. <laughs> Actually, so just in full, as a matter of full disclosure, I'm a member of the board of the Pacific Legal Foundation, right. the board of trustees of Pacific Legal Foundation, which is a sort of libertarian um, public interest law firm. And they are indeed, they just did file a case by a professor who did not get, did not get a job at a UC campus. And he claims that the, the diversity requirements meant he never really got by the early filtering stage. I think that's, you're going to see more lawsuits like that. At the University of California, every time I come up for a salary increase. And let me reassure the listeners and the taxpayers of California, these are pitiful, a pittance, tiny, tiny pay increases uh, below the rate of inflation, let me assure you. But when we get a uh, pay increase, I have to file a report on my contributions to diversity. Uh, Every single employee and professor in the university has to explain why they helped diversity if they want to get a pay increase. So I used to say, guess this, Bill, I used to say, uh, I am a conservative Asian faculty member of the University of California. I am per se diverse on this campus. Let's but I'm thinking it. next time I won't file one at all. I might just say this violates my my right to free speech. I'm not going to file a diversity statement. See what happens. Let's, let's back up a second. If you file that statement, John, and you put on that statement zero, you did not take a penny out of your pocket for any contribution. Does that affect your raise? <laughs> oh, well, so it's not uh, it's not the financial contribution. It's just like your contributions. Like, uh, did you, right, for example, they want to see things like this. Did you add a week in your class about, you know, racial injustice? Yep. Did you right, write a piece of scholarship looking at social injustice? You know, you're supposed to, it's not financial. You're supposed to spend your time and energy as an employee helping racial diversity on campus. And so everyone knows what's going on. And 
I think because of this Harvard case, you're going to, as you say, people are going to start taking a stand against DEI. In fact, I think that's even more sharply raised by the 303 creative case, the case of the uh, wedding planner. Web designer in Colorado, right. Yeah, because she was, she uh, believed, right? She's a devout Christian. Mm -hmm. She doesn't want to make uh, these websites for gay marriages. She just believes, you know, and she takes a literal approach to the Bible. She doesn't think that gay marriage is, is, is moral. So she's happy to design uh, wedding uh, websites, but not to celebrate gay marriage. And so there the court said, you're right under the free speech clause. And maybe because of your freedom of religion means the government can't make you say things you don't want to say. That also might come up with these Mm anti-DEI lawsuits, not just in universities, but also I think in other places like businesses, uh, the workplace. I think, I think the, the two together, the Harvard case, I hadn't really thought of it this way, Bill, until you asked, but if you combine the Harvard case and the 303 creative case, Mm -hmm. you have the, you know, the makings of a good lawsuit against these DEI initiatives, not just in the, against the government, but also against companies. Right. The other shoe, which I'm looking at here to drop a uh, drop John is the idea of uh, legacy as a factor in university admissions. Mm-hmm. Uh, some universities have already gone down this road. Uh, Amherst, MIT, Johns Hopkins no longer consider legacy their admissions processes. Uh, however, your alma mater Harvard does. And actually yes. on, on Monday, a lawsuit was filed. A Boston based nonprofit called Lawyers for Civil Rights filed a suit on behalf of black and Latino groups in New England, claiming that Harvard's admissions policy violates the Civil Rights Act. Um, I did a little homework on this, John, according to the website admissionssite.com. Harvard legacy acceptance rates for the class of 2025 was about 16%. Only 12% of the new Clemson students who enrolled the class of 2024 identified themselves as legacy students. Legacy here, by the way, gets a little tricky, John. Uh, yeah. I believe legacy is bloodline, is it not? For example, if your uncle went to Harvard, you could not claim legacy, right? Yeah, yeah. I think it's your parents or siblings or something like that. So it's bloodline. Here's what I'm curious about this, John. Uh, It's an interesting idea, but I went up and actually looked up Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. Let me read the language to you. Quote, no person in the United States shall on the ground of race, color, or national origin be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. That's what is at stake here. Harvard and other major universities get federal money, so they have to comply here. But John, Race, color, national origin. I don't see the words Nepo baby in there. <laughs> uh, Zuckerberg's kids getting in one way or the other. <laughs> exactly. So how well, so how would the court process this? How would you factor mm-hmm. legacy into the Civil Rights Act? Is there is there, is a, there a Lexus between the two? Well, this is the I think this is the important thing that comes from your first question, Bill. Mm-hmm. What is affirmative action? And affirmative action. It can include lots of other things than race. The, the court's decision only is limited to race because it's the 14th Amendment that right, says no one can be taught, denied the equal protection of the laws and the government can't right, take away privileges and immunities. And in this case, Harvard, UNC Chapel Hill were discriminating against Asians and whites on the basis of their race. That doesn't mean that you couldn't have affirmative action based on socioeconomic class. Mm-hmm. So apparently it seems that Harvard has been having an affirmative action program for wealthy kids. <laughs> that was their affirmative action, but they could turn right around and have affirmative action for poor kids. And the constitution doesn't say a lick. As you said, 
Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which in a way implements the Constitution uh, by using federal funds, right? That's how Harvard actually got dragged into this case is because they took money from the federal government. And Title VI says, if you take federal funds, then you have to be colorblind. Harvard, uh, right? Harvard could still do all kinds of right? discrimination on the basis of this, discrimination on the basis of that, as long as it doesn't include the Title VI categories, which is race and national origin. Right. Oh, and, and gender. Title IX is also about gender. So I don't think, on the other hand, that legacy, therefore, is unconstitutional. It's just a kind of criteria that's not addressed by the laws. Now, if you look at the states that have, you know, all like California and Texas, that have these non-discrimination, you know, and you know, colorblind requirements for emissions, that's what they immediately went to. Right. That they went to socioeconomic factors and they tried to right expand emissions for the poor. I'm all for that, actually. I'd much rather have that than race-based affirmative action. That actually comports much more. And actually, this is interesting. Chief Justice Roberts says this, and Justice Thomas says this in his concurrence. He say, if you look at who affirmative race-based affirmative action benefits, the statistics seem to show it affects upper middle class and upper class Blacks and Hispanics. And they say, why should a upper class uh, Black student who goes to Andover benefit when you know a poor white kid who, who emigrated from, say, Ukraine and work their way up through the public schools of Los Angeles get no benefit. So I think that I think that would actually comport with why you see those such high poll numbers in support of quote unquote just affirmative action because I think many Americans like the idea of giving a helping hand for people who were poor or didn't have uh, you know financial educational opportunities. Uh, so why doesn't I, I think Harvard should do that now? But this lawsuit can't force them to because like using socioeconomic class is not legal or illegal. It's okay. Yeah, I wonder uh, if Harvard though would dread the, this case in this regard. Uh, I don't think they want discovery into admissions, just as we saw with the uh, with yeah. uh, affirmative action and the withering comments about Asian applicants being devoid of personality and so forth. Can you imagine the comments in the admissions files about various idiot sons and daughters of donors? Because <laughs> legacy is about one thing. Legacy is about keeping the Legacy is about keeping the money trade rolling, plain and simple. Imagine the rude, rude comments the emissions officers will make about Thurston Howell the third, about Thurston Howell the fourth, and the Thurston Howell the fifth. <laughs> well, you know, when a dad always turned to Animal House, John, and when they're looking at the pledge class, and uh, and uh, I think uh, the first guy, Larry Kroger, comes up, and some guy in the back goes, "We need the dues." Money <laughs> <laughs> here. Let's, uh, John, let's shift back. This ties into your book. Um, I want to talk about relationships between justices, in particular mm-hmm. to Clarence Thomas and Kachanji uh, Brown Jackson, uh, who are at very opposite ends of the affirmative action case. Um, they're an interesting study in this regard. Uh, Justice Thomas, uh, your former boss, he just turned 75. Mm-hmm. I believe he is the oldest serving justice on the court right now. Yes. Um, uh, Justice uh, Jackson will soon turn 53. She is the youngest serving uh, member or the newest member on the court, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are both African-American, obviously, but they have a very different view of affirmative action. Let me read to you a portion from what uh, Justice Jackson wrote. She wrote a 28-page dissent, John, including this passage, quote, Gulf size race based gaps exist with respect to the health, wealth, and well being of American citizens, her dissent began. She later added, quote, With let them eat cake obliviousness today, the majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by legal fiat. By deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. 
to which Clarence Thomas responded in a 58-page opinion, which might be kind of his magnus opus uh, for his career mm. on the court. Concurring with the majority, he wrote the following, quote, this is very personal, quote, as she sees things, we are all inexorably trapped in a fundamentally racist society with the original sin of slavery and the historical subjugation of Black Americans still determining our lives today. The panacea she counsels is to unquestionably accede to the view of elite experts and reallocate society's riches by racial means as necessary to, quote, level the playing field. All is judged by racial metrics. I strongly disagree. John, are opinions that personal? This is actually an extraordinary exchange bill. I haven't seen anything like it in Supreme Court opinions in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. This very personal exchange. I think that Justice Thomas, having clerked for him, is actually very uh, conscious of formalities and being polite and courteous. But I think Justice Jackson wrote an opinion, which I think is, I call it the 1619 Project yes. opinion. She's a she's a critical race theorist on the Supreme Court because her, her opinion basically says the United States is structurally racist and it has been from the start. And so, as she says, look at all the disparities in wealth, health care, so on and so on between blacks and whites. Given that this is the product of such deep set racism, what's a little thing like affirmative action to make up for? Mm -hmm. Justice Thomas fundamentally doesn't believe that. And he doesn't think it's the role of government to try to correct it. And you can see in his opinion, he actually accuses Justice Jackson of holding racist beliefs herself for thinking these things because she he says because Justice Jackson thinks this way she herself is stereotyping individuals based on their racial group and then the more important thing is it gets even more personal he he I've never seen things like this before in he says you Justice Jackson could not do a worse thing to young black kids growing up than telling them everything that happens to them that's bad is because of their race and that they can't do anything good unless they're treated on the basis of their race. He says, this is the most destructive thing you could do. And he says, look, the right answer is you work hard, you make the best of your God-given talents and you don't play, you don't accept that you're a victim. Yes, this is an extraordinary exchange. Um, but I think Justice Thomas was provoked because he could not stand the idea, this critical race theory, uh, you know, opinion, uh, basically calling the court and American society as a whole fundamentally racist to the core. Yeah, but I think it's worth noting that this is kind of part of Clarence Thomas's life journey. He was in a past life the chair of the uh, the head of the EEOC, correct? Oh yes, but and it also has to do with their experience because right, uh, right, it's Justice. Jackson was, you know, an upper middle class, uh, you know, black kid in Miami. Uh, she probably benefited, whereas Justice Thomas is a kid who, you know, was born before Brown, who grew up under segregation. And he feels, you know, he doesn't think that blacks need affirmative action, you know, race-based preferences uh, to succeed. So it's also personal in that way, because they're both um, speaking from their own personal experience. Right. Uh, I would point out, though, that uh, the fireworks, keeping with our 4th of July theme, the comments in Jackson weren't the only justices with fireworks. Here's Elena Kagan in dissent, John. She said, quote, in every respect, the court today exceeds its proper limited role on our nation's governance. And here is Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, responding, quote, it has become a disturbing feature of some recent opinions to criticize the decisions with which they disagree as going beyond the proper role of the judiciary. 
It sounds like the uh, chief has taken out a ruler and he's trying to wrap some justices on the knuckles. Oh, I, I actually think that dissents are extraordinary in uh, two respects. Yes, one, Justice Kagan, in this opinion, and then in the Biden uh, student debt cancellation opinion, basically attacks the role of the court in democracy. It accuses a Supreme Court of trying to trample on democracy, which is strange because uh, in the uh, actually in the uh, Harvard case, Harvard is uh, the court is doing something which is extraordinarily popular. Right. What's amazing about a racial preferences is they've they've lived on <laughs> for so long, fifty years, when more than two thirds of the American people want them gone, uh, and then in the Biden case, it's an extraordinary. Justice Kagan says you're undermining democracy when the court's holding is if you want to spend $400 billion, then Congress has to vote on it. <laughs> That's, it sounds like you're undermining democracy by making Congress vote on something. The horror, you know, the horror, the horror. But then the other extraordinary opinion is that Justice Sotomayor, so the three of them together, basically, but they, they tried to. to to kind of tell college admissions officers how to cheat. <laughs> they, they try to say, oh, well, even after this decision, you could do this, you could do that to try to take account of race. And that really ticks Justice Ro Chief Justice Roberts off. He says something, you know, to the college admissions officers along the lines of, you know, the best place to get legal advice is not from the dissent and a losing Supreme Court opinion. Right. <laughs> That's also very personal and remarkable. And then they get into this discussion, which you asked about earlier, Bill, about, well, uh, could you mention race on your college admissions essays? You know, how does a court, you know, monitor this? And so Chief Justice Roberts says, of course, you can mention race if you're writing about, well, why were you inspired? You know, maybe you're a black kid and you're inspired by Martin Luther King. That's legitimate to write about. Or he could, you could, he could say you could talk about race in terms of something you had to overcome. Maybe you're Hispanic, you grow up in inner city LA, and you have to overcome uh, race, racial gangs. Like that's something to take account of too. But Chief Justice Roberts says, uh, in those cases, you're still looking at the individual. You're not giving, say, every Black student or Hispanic student a bump up and every Asian student a bump down just because of their membership in a racial group. And so this is the extraordinary thing, which is, uh, he, he sends, he says to college admissions officers is, you know, you can't do indirectly what you can't do directly. You, we aren't going to allow you to, you, the colleges to make up an admission system, which magically reproduces all the racial quotas you had before. We're going to be watching. We're going to be vigilant. Uh, so don't listen to these dissenters who are trying to tell you to cheat and evade a Supreme Court opinion. One other feature of some dissent, John, was playing rather fast and loose with uh, data and facts. I want to point you to two things. Here is Justice Jackson uh, linking affirmative action to Black infants' survival. Her exact words, quote, for high-risk Black newborns, having a Black physician more than doubles the likelihood that the baby will live and not die. She is playing very fast and loose with medical data with that, John. Here is Sonia Sotomayor in her dissent in 303 Creative versus Atlantis, the web designer case you've been talking about. Um, she uh, wrote that a, quote, a social system of discrimination created an environment which LGBT people were unsafe. And then she cited the case of Matthew Shepard, John, who um, was uh, killed. Um, she said uh, his uh, words, he was, quote, targeted by two men tortured, tied to a buck fence and left for dead for who he was. What she does mention is that while Matthew Shepard was gay, evidence points to his murder being the result of a drug deal going bad and not homophobia. Right. So here you have the justices or maybe the clerks working for them just skewing a lot of 
a lot of facts. And that's that's bothersome. Do we need to have a political fact or some sort of fact checking for the court? Unfortunately, the court used to police itself. That's what the dissents and concurrences and majority opinions are for. Uh, sadly, I think it also reflects uh, how uh, irrational to me the dissenters have become. They've, you know, they're on the losing end of a conservative court, you know, that returned abortion to the states last term, which said that right there's a, a right to bear arms that. Um, is becoming very suspicious of a large unrestricted federal government that stands up for freedom of conscience now and and is, I hope, started the end of this racial diversity craze. And they can't believe it. I mean, this is, but I think, let me say, I think this, there's a difference here because when conservatives were on the losing end of the Warren court decisions, or even the losing end of cases going through to the 1980s, I didn't see justices and dissent attacking the institution of the Supreme Court itself, attacking uh, you know, the Constitution in a way, or claiming that society was fundamentally misguided and had to be right, corrected. Mm -hmm. uh, this, I, so I think these uh, progressive justices um, are a part, in a way, of the mindset that says, let's attack the institution, let's pack the court, right? let's do all these things that we haven't threatened since the 1930s, or which the segregationists in the South threatened but could not achieve after Brown versus Board of Education. I worry. I, I do worry that the uh, court uh, is becoming subject to the same forces of polarization we're seeing in the area. You know where you where you study the the political process and electoral systems. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, expand on that, John. Uh, I'm going to uh, give you five data points here, and you tell me what they have in common. Number one, in April, ProPublica publishes a piece in which it links Clarence Thomas to the uh, Republican donor Harlan Crow, suggesting that Thomas cannot uh, be involved in certain cases in which Crow has any sort of involvement. They basically question Thomas's integrity. Also in April, John Politico reports that Neil Gorsuch, soon after he um, was uh, nominated, sold 40 acres of Colorado land to a law firm with multiple cases before the court. In June, ProPublica was back with a story on Samuel Lito taking an upscale fishing vacation with a Republican billionaire. Back in December, John, we have calls for Amy Coney Barrett to recuse herself from gay rights cases because of her affiliation with a faith group that was deemed anti-gay. And finally, Brett Kavanaugh. There's a documentary out on Kavanaugh, which revisits his Yale days and goes down the same path as confirmation hearing, accuses him of all sorts of tawdry behavior. What do those five justices have in common, John? There are five of the six conservative voting voting justices on this court. So I see a pattern here. <laughs> well, I've seen, I, I, I don't know how true this is, but I've seen accusations that ProPublica is funded, which has you know, published a lot of these and done the research is, you know, funded by, you know, a progressive dark money groups. And right. um, you see these accusations, you know, attacks on the justices, attacks on uh, the federal society, claims there's this sort of nefarious network of conservatives, uh, you know, um, achieving these results. Um, I only, it's always funny when I read these accusations, I only wish conservatives were as clever and devious as the left thinks we are. <laughs> we're an amazing disorganized, infighting, bumbling group of people. It's lucky we ever achieve anything. <laughs> I mean, look, it took 50 years for the conservative legal movement to achieve overturning Roe, achieve overturning Backey. In a time period, you know, you start with, say, 1968 when Nixon was president, Republicans have had a large majority of the appointments to the Supreme Court. 
Mm-hmm. What's amazing to me is how long these, uh, you know, these doctrines, which I think were just totally unrooted in the law, but were the core to progressive ideology, stayed alive for 50 years. Right. So that's one. And then this, and the second thing is, is, again, you see, you don't see the same attacks on liberal justices, you know, even though you have a history of liberal justices, you know, actually taking money <laughs> from people, you know, like Justice Fortas practicing law while he was on the Supreme Court. Or Justice Brennan taking, like, I think Justice Brennan or another justice just, like, received cash when he retired from a friend. I think so. And then you have these accusations. Justice Sotomayor didn't recuse herself from cases involving her publisher who gave her, gave her quite a large advance. But the thing to me is uh, it's all an effort to uh, bring justices in the Supreme Court into disrepute, disrepute. It's ironic they're being attacked by members of Congress who actually it's part of how they do business is they receive campaign contributions in cash from people and then they do them favors. And that's not even seen as problematic. I mean, that's just the way Congress works. Okay. So, so, you, what, so, so what is the end game here, John? Because I, I hmm. see three, three possible end games here. One, it's as simple as you're just trying to force these judges off of cases. You're trying to just make an argument for recusal. So you just pressure them through negative press to have them step down from certain cases. Second argument, John, it's a political one that you're trying to rally a base. You're trying to get a certain group of voters who respond in a certain way to Supreme Court decisions, such as the affirmative action case, such as the 303 case. And you're trying to just, by dragging the justices through the mud, you're just trying to get them angry to turn out next November to punish Republicans. Or the third piece, John, is you're trying to lay the groundwork to the the argument for packing the court. You you tell me I'm puzzled in a way. I think uh, the idea of packing the court requires large majorities of the House and Senate and a Democratic president and a Senate that's willing to get rid of the filibuster. Right. So I don't see, and like even when FDR, this is the interesting, FDR tried to pack the court in 1937. His party had more than two thirds of the House and the Senate. He could have done anything he wanted, but even his own party turned on him when he tried to pack the court. And I think the Biden White House is very aware that packing the court is extremely unpopular. So I I think it's more uh, what you say, the other options, Bill, I think, but I don't know. I'm curious what you think. I think it's about rallying the base, getting them to turn out. Elections these days, I guess, are about turnout. Um, But I also think that this turns off a lot of independence. I mean, the people are going to turn out because they want to pack the court, seems to me are going to turn out already because they're pissed off about Dobbs and now the Harvard case. It's like, you don't need to turbocharge the far progressive left to show up at the ballot or give a, you know, give money. So I, I don't, to me, that's what I think politically, it seems to me to be a loser in our politics to say, I want to damage the Supreme court. I want to reduce its independence. I want to add more members, but I, what do you think? I'm, I, I don't get it actually make, doesn't make sense to me. So if the choices are a, this is all about trying to get justice to recuse. B, rallying a base, or C, trying to some end game of packing the court. I agree with you. Let's take packing the court out of the game. The fact is, if you want to change the Senate rules, you kill the filibuster before you before you pack the court, because yeah. that, that is, has far more impact in terms on your legislative agenda and your judicial agenda and so forth. Uh, recusal, I think I'll cancel that one out too, because that's just kind of a piecemeal thing. I think it's about rallying the base, John, in this regard. Uh, you saw what the effect that Dobbs had on 2022. We saw back in 2016 the effect that this had for Republicans. Trump, we've, for all of Donald Trump does out there, we forgot that one thing he talked about was the court. 
And this was an issue in 2016 because you had the one seat sitting out there waiting to be filled, and then Trump got two other. By the way, what about an interesting alternate universe? Trump loses that election, John. Oh. It's a six-to-three six progressive court. <laughs> yeah, no, no. If, so I mean, this so is, let me, so let this, me is, this might be the most long-term and the, the most long-term consequential thing Trump did in domestic policy mm-hmm. is his appointments to the Supreme Court. Yes, I think clearly. But let me ask you this, John, if it were a six to three court that went the other way, if it were six Democratic appointed justices, would we be seeing an affirmative action lawsuit? Would we be seeing a 303 case? Because, you know, you, these cases would be dead on arrival with that court. I, I agree with you. What we would have seen was, now this is the weird thing, uh, and this is too much in the weeds perhaps, but progressives, they don't really have an ideology that matches originalism, right? There's a very simple thing people understand. Interpret the Constitution based on the original understanding. The thing that's troubling progressive thought is they don't really have a theory how to interpret the Constitution. So it turns into just use the Constitution to achieve progressive goals. We don't really care what the 14th Amendment means, but we really want to have affirmative action. We don't really care what due process means, but we really need to preserve Roe. And so I think you would have seen, yes, you would have seen a a progressive liberal majority on the court with just, I mean, Roberts, Alito, and Thomas, you know, huddled, (laughs) bitter in the corner of the court cafeteria. But I don't think you would have seen these attacks on the court by them. I don't think you would have seen these assaults on the independence of the judiciary that you're seeing now because conservatives are on the losing end. But I think you would have seen this, unfortunately, this freewheeling approach to the Supreme Court where it would have just been about achieving or protecting progressive priorities, but without any grander grander principles at stake, like the kind you saw this week, the Constitution is colorblind. Instead, the Constitution is just infinitely manipulable to achieve those goals we know are right, whether it's global warming, I mean, uh, you know, whatever you you're stopping global warming or racially diverse population, or you know, what have you. Yeah. Final question for you, John. Uh, two defining features of of this year's caseload. Number one, uh, the administrative state dealing with mm. Biden student loans is ultimately a case of the administrative state, the powers that the administration can and cannot have, but then contentious social issues getting into affirmative action, getting into um, an issue of, of uh, free speech last year, abortion, and so forth. Is this the foreseeable future for the court, John, this combination of checks and balances on the executive branch, but also social issues that Congress either can't deal with or chooses not to? That's a great question, Bill, because, uh, and I've been thinking about it this way, is if you look at Dobbs last term and Harvard this term, these this is the achievement of the two most important goals of the conservative movement. Mm-hmm. Get rid of Roe, get rid of Backy. And the question you're asking, Bill, in a way is, now that that's been achieved, what's in the future for the conservative legal movement? You're not going to see, uh, I think, uh, issues on a par with abortion and racial preferences. But what you are going to see, I think, two directions, as you suggest. One is... Um, cutting back on the power of the federal government. I think the COVID emergency and what the Biden and Trump administrations did to centralize power there is only spurring or accelerating what has been a steady drip, drip uh, confrontation between the judges and unelected technical bureaucrats who, you know, Dr. Fauci, for example, claimed great power uh, in our society based on the claim of scientific or technical expertise. 
the court has been questioning that. In fact, you could see the Harvard result as part of that. And I think you're going to see more of that. You're going to see an effort to reduce the sweep of the federal government and to subject bureaucrats to more political control. The other area you put it, it's just, I'm not sure they're related in any way, but the other area, but maybe they are, but the other area you're going to see this is in freedom of thought, conscience, and speech. So the wedding planner case, the greater protections for religious freedom is another theme of this court. You know, maybe the thing that connects them is really this, I would say maybe this is appropriate to say on July 4th, is a faith in the common sense of the American people and a rejection of having solutions and decisions imposed upon them from an elite on high. So the 303 creative case may be more of the sign of the future, mm -hmm. a conflict between your right to say what you want or not to say what you want versus a government that says, no, you must bend the knee because our vision of diversity for the future requires you to. And that I think might be, there you see this, again, the court standing against this idea of bureaucracy, this idea of you know wisdom on high that we've had in our politics ever since Woodrow Wilson and the creation of the you know Weberian bureaucratic state, if you want to get fancy about it. But you know what? That reminds me of the American Revolution, thank God. <laughs> when the American people said we're not taking it anymore from you know these fancy pants, you know, lords and ladies in London, so so far away. We know it's best. Let's use American common sense. I think that's what the court is appealing to. That's good. And John, how long before we see the lawsuit, you versus County and Marin and one man's right to launch fireworks? <laughs> you know what? My students disappoint me so many times because you know what? In Berkeley, when I lived there, Berkeley put into place a, a huge tax on soda, huge right. tax on soda. Right. Even though and this is even though Berkeley, even though Berkeley studies showed it's interesting after the tax went into effect, diabetes and obesity went up in the city of Berkeley. It was a, and so I always wanted there to be a case challenging the ban on soda called you versus Berkeley, but I couldn't get a student to bring the case. They disappointed me so. Yeah. Well, for a non-Bay Area residents, the irony of this is just could not be more. Um, we, in this area, we don't do a lot of fireworks. Now, it's a combination, first of all, weather. Um, San Francisco fireworks are notoriously uh, hit or miss because of the uh, low cloud level. Uh, but a lot of local jurisdictions don't allow fireworks. Some local governments plead poverty. Uh, others cite danger of the dry land and so forth. And so local news talks about this. And what's the first image they show? Tons of fireworks going off over Oakland. <laughs> In fact, it looks like it looks like Baghdad. It looks like Baghdad back in the day, which has so many fireworks going off, so many explosive devices. Well, but how many of those are fireworks, and how much of those are real ammunition? Is the question. Yeah. Welcome <laughs> to California. Hey, John. Thanks for taking time out of your fourth to do this with me. I sure enjoyed it. Yeah, you too, Bill. And have a good Fourth of July. And God bless the United States of America. Well said, my friend. Thank you. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Tell your friends about us. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled H-O-O-V-E-R-I-N-S-T, at Hoover Inst. John Yu's book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. John, where do we find it? Oh, I'm sure the best place to get it would be Amazon or barnesandnoble.com. And it's out now. Yes, just came out a few days ago. 
great. I mentioned our website at the beginning of the show. That's hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which keeps you updated on what John Yu and his Hoover colleagues are up to. That's emailed to you weekdays. Also, you can sign up for Hoover's Pod Blast, which delivers the best of our podcast each month to your inbox. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with a new installment of Matters Policy and Politics. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.